But we want to turn to our scriptures this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, and I want to start with a, a story that relates to college football because that started this weekend. Uh, go Purdue. Boiler up. One of the one of the more interesting stories, college football was in New Year's Day, 1929. Georgia Tech played the University of Southern California in the uh, in the Rose Bowl, and in that game, a man named Roy Riggles recovered a fumble for Cal, but somehow became confused and started to run 65 yards in the wrong directions. The crowd, of course, was going wild. He thought they were cheered for him, so he went even faster. Finally, one of his teammates, Benny Lam, outdistanced him and tackled him just before he scored for the opposing team. Uh, Tech, when California attempted to punt from, from that uh, place there, Tech blocked the kick and scored a safety uh, for the, for, in a very low-scoring game. Now, the reason I want to talk about that is because we're finishing our sermon series on timeless wisdom for modern life. And we're going to be focusing on the issue of time, time and time management today. And I bring that story in because it's going to illustrate that unless we're headed in the right way, it doesn't matter how fast we're going or how productive we are to get there, right? So that's the thing that's going to come back to us again and again. Now, in one sense, of course, time is hardly a new issue for modern life. Time is timeless. People have always had time. But in another sense, it's very much a modern issue. For most of human history, if you lived almost any other time or place, you would not have a clock, nor would you have need for a clock. You would go out and work during the day, and you would come in and rest of human night. For most of human history, you would rarely, if ever, hear someone say the one phrase that has almost defined modern life, at least in our culture, I don't have enough time. Now, the irony, of course, is that um, is this. Oh, I'll put this as a meme, actually. What if I told you you actually did have enough time? And I, I want to prove that in two ways. Number one, I just want to show you the average working hour by persons engaged in the United States and how that's gone down even since 1950 when uh, some of you were born. I wasn't a long way from there, but... <laughs> Even in the lifetime of some of the people in this room, how much that average time at work has gone down. Even more, if you extrapolate that back out to like 120 years ago, where most people were working 10 to 12 hour days. Second chart I want to show you is this. Media consumption. And this is telling us, and I've seen other visualizations, but they're all coming to around the same conclusion that for most of us, we're spending somewhere between 10 and 11 hours on average consuming media, most of that not being work. I hope you're below average on this. Uh, I really do. But all of us could say, okay, we're on this chart somewhere. We're spending time on TV, radio, mobile, desktop, not necessarily productive time. So my point is this. We do have enough time. We have less work responsibilities, and even our household chores, we have modern efficiencies that, you know, our great-great-grandparents could only have dreamed about, and yet we still feel pressed. We still feel this issue that I don't have enough time. Well, that is what we're going to explore. <clears throat> we're going to begin with prayer, and then we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. So let's begin. 
asking God to guide us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us a place in a culture that is so affluent where we do not have to spend 90% of our waking time in survival mode or work mode. That is a great gift. But with every great gift gathered becomes a, the responsibility to use it well. Would you let today's sermon be part of that? Would you speak through us, through the, the message here, into our hearts? Lord, we're all different places. There are some people here that are in college, and there are some people here uh, in 30s or 40s or 70s or 80s. We all have different schedules and different challenges in this area. There's no way I could do justice to every person's need in this, but your spirit, who is within every believer, your spirit who guided the inspiration of this word that we'll be studying, Lord, we ask that through your spirit, you show us what you want us to know, a word of reassurance or a word of change. Thank you, Father. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so... I have one main idea I want to get across this morning. I've already hinted at it. That unless we have a purpose and plan for our time, we will waste our lives, no matter how fast or no matter how productive we are. Unless we have a purpose for what our time is and a plan for getting there, we will waste our very lives because that's what our life is made of, is time. In our text is Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, this is a more literal, trans literal translation from what Paul wrote in the Greek language. And most of our modern interpretations are going to try to paraphrase this a bit. For example, the NIV, instead of redeeming the time, says, make the most of every opportunity which is a fine paraphrase here, but the problem is that we lose a very beautiful word. Paul chose to use this word, and he used it again in, uh, in Philippians about redeeming the time. He chose to use that word for, for purpose. And so I want to break this down into two parts. Number one, what does it mean to redeem the time? And second, how? How can we redeem the time? So in your life and my life, think through in your life, if, if if Paul was sitting down next to me, and we were sitting at a table at Starbucks, I'm not sure if Paul would go to Starbucks, but um, anyway, you're sitting down at Chili's, wherever you want to sit down with Paul at, and he's, he's you know, Jim, Katie, I want you to redeem your time this week. What would that, what would that look like, actually? All right, so let's get a handle on what this means. Well, redemption, that word, again, it's a very special word, basically means this. It means paying a price to win something back that would otherwise be lost. And uh, you recall that in the ancient world, they did things a little bit differently. And the idea of redeeming a slave or a, or a prisoner was very common. It's, we don't have that today. So maybe just kind of remind ourselves the situation in, in which you would find this word redeem or redemption. The most common scenario would be, again, as a prisoner or or someone who is captured as a slave or a servant. Say, for example, that Egypt goes to battle with Babylon, and they have, they have this ongoing war, they have a great battle, 
and uh, say Babylon wins, and they capture 10,000 Egyptian soldiers. All right, what do they do? Well, they're not going to send them back to Egypt. Well, they'll just get more weapons and come back again. Uh, and they're not going to house them for five years, or however long the war takes, and, and feed them. That's not something you did back then. Uh, we do that today, thankfully. And they're not going to kill them either, because human capital, human work, is a very valuable commodity. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to make them all slaves. You're going to make them all prisoners. And so they will be a prisoner or a slave of the king or, or someone else who buys them for a certain price, and, and they will be lost. They will be lost unless, say, one of those Egyptians, or hopefully many of them, have family with enough resources, maybe a spouse or, or maybe a father or extended family or clan, and they're willing to pay the redemption price. And if they're willing to do that, then the price is paid and they're brought back, restored to their family and their community and their country. Otherwise, they're not. Otherwise, they're lost. So that's the idea of redemption, is that you, you pay the price for something because if you don't, you're going to lose something valuable to you. And that's why it's so beautiful that that word's applied to us. Christ redeemed us at the price of his own blood. Paul uses that term a lot. He's not unfamiliar with what it means, nor could he be in his context. So what does he mean then about redeeming the time? Well, he helps us out. He says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. All right, well, what does that mean? Well, recall in Paul's mind, he uses this terminology especially, a day is not just a 24-hour period normally. It has the idea of, of a time period or an era, and especially the time to come will be the day of the Lord. And there will be a day when God comes back and Jesus Christ sets up his eternal kingdom, and, and that kingdom is, is, extinguishes all evil. And that kingdom is full of righteousness and justice and holiness and beauty and truth and love. But that day is not yet here. We live in the day before, as it were. So Paul is thinking not that every day that we have is evil or that every part of this world is evil, but rather that that day when all evil is extinguished and everything is made right is not yet here. We are in this day where there's still a lot of evil in this world. And because of that then, what he's saying is this, if we were already in that day, we wouldn't have to worry about that. But because we're in this day, we need to redeem the time because the days are evil and that day is still coming. I, I, I kind of sum it up like this, that the idea ha he has in mind is that unless we make choices to live for our eternal purpose in light of that day, that we're going to lose our time. I think that's what he has in mind here. Now, That kind of brings us to this next sub-point here in redeeming the time. The only way to tell the difference between wasting the time and redeeming time is by understanding what the purpose of your time is, right? Let me give you an example. Charles Francis Adams, son of John Quincy Adams, president, um, he kept a diary, and one day he wrote, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary, which is still in existence, on that same day, Brooke Adams made this entry, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. Now, which was it? Well, again, if the purpose of your days and your time is to be more productive in your career, then that was a wasted day. 
But if the purpose of our life is to become a being of love and to show love, especially to our family, then that was a day very well spent. And that's what I'm trying to get across here. The only way to tell if we're wasting our time or using it well is not how many hours we're productive, but to understand what the purpose of our time is. Our culture will tell us this. You waste time when you're not productive. Productivity is the measure of how, how it's spent. And uh, I searched on Amazon this, this week or last week, and I put one word. I, I narrowed it down to books, you know, because they sell everything on Amazon these days. But I narrowed it down to books, and I put in one word in the search bar, productivity. And the first page came up, says, one through 24 of over 60,000 results. 60,000 self-help books on productivity. Wow. That tells you that, uh, number one, there, there's a great craving for this. But number two, there's probably a lot of confusion about this. And out of those books, obviously I haven't read them all, but most every book I've read about productivity or, or time management, every article I've read is based on the assumption that the goal here is to be more productive in getting things done but they don't really dwell with the question of what things you should actually do because of your purpose. So what does Paul mean then? Let me give you an example before I go on to that. Maybe we should ask this question, productive for what? I want my time to be more productive, productive for what? Say, say I'm a drug dealer <laughs> and I read these self-help books and I get 40% 40 more, 40 more productive in in hooking other people onto my product. Is that a good thing, right? Do we wish Adolf Hitler had more efficiency in time production? Uh, no. The idea is we have to ask the question, productive for what? If it's not a good goal, if it's not an eternal goal, then it's, then it's still a waste of time. So what does Paul mean then? Kind of sum up this first point. Paul is telling us that we should carefully guard our walk, watch, our, watch the way we live. Be very careful then how you live. And he has this idea that we redeem our time when we understand our eternal purpose and we live in light of that purpose. We redeem our time when we understand that eternal purpose and we live in light of that. And therefore, I'm, I'm going to sum it up this way. There are two ways of wasting our time. One's by doing nothing, and the other is by doing everything but what is eternal. You can be the most productive person in the world, but if you're not doing the right things for the eternal purpose that God has made you for, it's still wasted. It's wasted as much as a couch potato who's watching 12 hours of TV and video games each day. So, having to get a handle, I think, on what it means to redeem the time. Second question, how? How do we do this? How do we redeem the time? What do we need to do to redeem the time? Well, I'm going to suggest three things. First, understand and embrace your purpose. Understand and embrace your purpose. And we've seen this going, right? Unless we have that purpose for our time, it doesn't really matter how productive we are. We're not working towards that purpose. But understanding our purpose is actually a little bit more difficult than, we, than it sounds. And I recall, I, I mentioned this before, because it struck with me. I was reading an interview um, with a headhunter of a very large firm, headhunter, recruiter, and he had interviewed thousands of people. These were all for executive jobs. He said he always entered the interview with the same question. What is your purpose in life? 
And he said out of all the thousands of people he interviewed, only two people could really give him a clear, coherent answer to that question. Wow. And it's sad because this is perhaps the crucial question each one of us must face inside. I mean, probably the most crucial is, who is Jesus and how do I respond to it? But through that, then we ask this question, then what's the purpose of my life as a, as a human and as a Christian? I'm going to be bringing that out in the next few weeks. Nate and I, as we preach through uh, the first couple chapters of Ephesians, it talked about the purpose of God, the purpose of God in creating mankind, the purpose of God in redemption, and then, therefore, our purpose because of this. Because our purpose is a gift. Our purpose is a gift. Our purpose can't be something we self-generate. It is a gift from God. Listen, if there is a God who created you, and he's a wise and rational being, then he did so for a purpose, right? So if you're created for a purpose, the most important thing is to figure out what that is and to live in that purpose as much as you're able. If there is no God, you're just a cosmic accident. You are here because a certain combination of molecules and atoms collided at a certain time and it brought you forth just like everybody else. And there's no purpose for anything because there was no purposer. We're here by random chance. We do not have a purpose in life except whatever we give it, whatever we choose to. Um, but if there is a God, then there is a purpose. I, I think the best way to kind of get a hold of this is to remember that we all have, as humans and as believers, there's a common purpose that we all share. So there's something that God has saved us to. Remember that word redemption. You're not only saved from wherever you were, but you're saved to being restored to what you should be, to your place. And so a lot of this is just being restored to the image of God, the real realm and purpose of God that he created us for, as described in Genesis 2 and Psalm chapter 8 especially. So our common purpose, I don't know if I have a slide for this or not. Yeah, there we go. Three aspects, to walk with God, to become like God, and to reflect God's light. And I, I'm using, I'm not going to look in the passage, but if you look in this passage of, of, of Ephesians, where this comes from, Ephesians 5, he talks about being light in this world. Other places he talks more about being the image of God in this world. And that, that is more of a job description than a metaphysical description. We're made in God's likeness, but we're made to image him, to reflect him. Now, here's the thing, and we're going to get more into these in the coming weeks, so I'm just kind of laying the foundation here. The way that we do that is going to be different. The way that you, in your relationship with God, become like him and therefore reflect him to the world and image him and become a vessel of his love and his power, his creativity and his wisdom is going to be different than the way I do. So there's this broad purpose, but within that, we all have our individual expressions of that purpose. Illustrations of this, easy to come by, right? Football season again. So you get 22, uh, 22 starters, and I think they have like 60 people all together on the team. Every player, that team, they have one goal, to win games. That's the point of the football team, right? But within that, each one has a way that they are uh, called to and, and gifted at doing so if you put the quarterback in as a defensive lineman, it's not going to work too well. Why? Because he has a certain body type that's not going to be conducive to that probably. He has a certain skill set, certain gifts, and certain uh, experiences 
that does that doesn't mean he he doesn't want the same thing as a defensive lineman. It just means that they though they have the same goal, their expressions of that are very different. Or think of an orchestra. They have one goal to beautifully recreate the music on the page. But the violinist does that in a different way than the percussionist. So we have this common purpose, but then we also have our unique purpose. And what I'm saying here is that in every stage of our life, there is this coming back to understanding, okay, based upon the experiences and the gifts and the other ways that God has wired me, this is how I am to be an expression of his grace, his mercy, his love, his wisdom to other people in the church, but also into the world. This is who he calls me to be. So it's understanding that and embracing that. And again, we're going to go further into that in the weeks ahead. Maybe you have a pretty firm idea of what that means for you. And, and maybe this is something that God's still working on you. All right, so the second thing. <clears throat> second thing is, Focus on your priorities based upon your purpose. Focus on your priorities based upon your purpose. Some years ago, a man put out a, a small booklet titled The Tyranny of the Urgent. Anybody read that book? The Tyranny of the Urgent. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great book. It's a great title, right? Because the idea is that unless we take control of what our week and our time is going to be about, the urgent will just kind of take over and fill every nook and cranny. I want to try to illustrate this. I adopted this chart from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits, Highly Successful People. So you've got these uh, two axes, and he puts it just important or not important, but I'm trying to get the idea, important for my purpose, the purpose for which God has created me or not. So think of all the th things that we can spend our time on and that we will spend our time on in this week ahead. Some of those are rather... Some of those are going to fall here, 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 and here. But all of them are going to find some, fall somewhere on here. Let me give you an example. So what are some things that are urgent, but they're not important? They're not tying into my purpose and who I am. Well, a lot of emails write that. You have to answer it because otherwise, you know, something bad might happen or something more annoying might happen. Some meetings, you have interruptions. You have just the daily demands of life. You have to do these things, right? You have to clean you know, clean the dishes after you eat them. And then you have things that are important, they're urgent, and they're also important for my purpose. So there are important emails, there are important meetings, there are important deadlines, and, and there's crisis, either at in my uh, school or, or with my family or with the work, they're, they're going to come up. You can't schedule them, but you know they're going to be there. But what's more interesting is that there's also these for example, there are things like social media, surfing the web, playing video games, spending time watching TV or, or YouTube or whatever. You can put in your own things here. They're not important and they're not urgent, right? You don't have to do them. They're not really important to your purpose, but you end up doing them because, well, you just want to relax or you, maybe you don't have anything else to do at the right time. Uh, and they're very easy to fall into. In fact, most of them are designed to be, if not addictive, at least frictionless, easy to fall into. And then over here, in this quadrant four, you have those things that are central to who you are as a person and as a Christian. 
that are eternally important, but they're not urgent. And what I mean by that is, if you skip them for a day or even for a week, your boss or your spouse or God is not going to yell at you. You can skip prayer for a week. You may not even notice a difference if it's only a few days or a week. But if you continually skip that, you become a very prayerless person with all the results. You can skip putting into your relationship with your spouse or with your children or other people. You can, you can skip putting time to that. If I ignored my wife this week because I had other things going on, she would understand. She would not yell at me. If I did that for a year, we'd have a terrible marriage, right? So these are important, but they're not urgent because there's not immediately something bad that happens when we don't do them. So what I'm saying is this. We have to understand our purpose and then think through those things which are not urgent, but they are priorities for reaching that purpose. And what that is is going to be different for us because we have different purposes. But focusing on those and thinking through those first. Let me give you a, another way to illustrate this. All right. So I want you to imagine that these quadrant four things are the big rocks. They're the most important thing for you ultimately to be in the person who's reaching the, your purpose that God's made you for. And we're going to put these in our week here. This, this is your week. This is the time of your week. We're going to put our big rocks in here first. Imagine then that that quadrant two, the urgent and important, or something like these rocks here. So we're going to add those in as well. What about the urgent, but they're not important for my purpose? I have to do them. Put this down a little bit. Now we're getting pretty, pretty full here, right? So let's just shake that down. All right. Then we got one more category. Put it up here so it didn't get spilled. Imagine this is that category down there in the lower, lower left, the things that we fill our time with. They're not urgent. We don't have to do them. They're not important for our purpose. Now, my point in this is not that you can always fill your week with more things. That is not my point. My point is this. If you don't put the big rocks in first, there's not going to be any room. Because the supply of water and sand is almost infinite in our culture, right? And that's what I mean by putting in those big rocks first. Think it through, God, what's my time for? And then think it through what that looks like in my week and putting that in there. All right, so we're already on to the third point here then, which is to plan your time based upon your purpose. Put in your big rocks first. And then secondly, uh, seek to improve, not to be perfect. Seek to improve. You ever heard that phrase, the, uh, the best is the enemy of the good? Um, and what that means is this, that for some of us, at least in some areas, if we can't get it exactly right, we don't try to make it a little bit better. 
And uh, I know that there are areas where that's like, you know, I'm not going to get all right, so I'm just not going to do it. All right. This is an area where we want to see to improve but not grow perfect. I just made this up. It's probably not a very good scale. You can make your own. Um, but think about the scale of intentionality here. Think about your week, your week ahead, this, this week that you have. Uh, number one, you might be on this level. I have no idea how to spend my discretionary time this week. Uh, number two, I have vague ideas about how I should spend my time. Number level three, I have a clear idea on what my priorities should be this week. Number four, I write down my priorities this week. So writing it down makes it makes me committed to it and, and put it in language, right? Uh, number five, I schedule my priorities or my big rocks in the week. So I, I look at the calendar and I don't just have on the meetings that I have or, or what other things I have to do. I'm writing in, okay, this is where I'm going to exercise, this is where I'm going to have devotions, this is where I'm going to read, this is where I'm going to, you're going to think through, uh, this is where I'm going to serve. I'm, I'm putting those big rocks on my weekly schedule. Number six, I time box my entire week. I don't know if you heard this term. I'm not sure I really like it. But this is the idea that for every part of your week, you're writing down what you're going to be doing. I've tried this. I can't do it, Okay. Uh, maybe some of you can, and my hat's off to you. I'm just, I'm just not wired to be that way, I guess. Um, but if you can, more power to you. And the more you can, again, at least getting the big rocks there and some of the others, uh, I think it will, you'll be well served. And then level seven. I not only do all this, but I communicate this with, with someone. I, I show someone else. Email, I email uh, uh, a coworker or a friend. I, I give a copy to my spouse. And say, this is what I'm going to try and do this week. All right. Now, that's a level where, okay, you're really putting yourself out there because someone else knows now. Now, again, my hope is not that you go from level one to level seven on the basis of one sermon. My hope is that we understand that we can't redeem the time unless we understand the purpose of our time, what it's for. And then we grow and something of this intentionality scale, asking God to guide us in this. Last thing, give yourself a lot of grace. Give yourself a lot of grace. Uh, we have an enemy who's called the accuser. In fact, that's what the name means. Satan means the accuser. So he loves to tempt, he loves to lead us into sin, but even more than that, he loves to accuse. And one of the things he will accuse you of, if you're trying to take this seriously about redeeming the time, is, okay, yeah, but you, you sure blew it. You sure wasted time this week. And, and you will, because we're going against the grain of our own natural laziness sometimes, our own habits that have become grown, but also very much against our, our culture, right? And, and we should not expect that we're going to get this all right. Let's show ourselves some grace. Show ourselves some grace. Did I do a little bit better? God, what kept me from doing better? Can you show me that? Do you remember our friend Roy Riggles that we started this sermon with? Where he ran the wrong direction for 65 yards and the other team scored because of that? That strange play came in the first half. And everyone who was watching the game was wondering, what in the world is that coach going to do? Coach Nibs sat down, or what is Coach Nibs going to do with Regals in the second half? The men came into the halftime. They sat down on the benches and on the floor, all but Regals. He put his blanket around his shoulder, sat down in a corner, put his face in his hands, and cried like a baby. 
And uh, if you play football, I only did for one year, but the coach always has a lot to say in the locker room, especially at halftime. But he was quiet. He was trying to, to, to decide what to do. Timekeeper came in and announced, okay, it's time to get back on the field. Three minutes. Coach Price looked at the team and said, all right, team, the same team that started the first half will, go into, will play the second half. And they got up, went out to the fields, all but Regals. He didn't even budge. Coach Labatt called him again. I said the same team would start. And Roy looked up and says, I can't do it, Coach. I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. i ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. And Coach Price reached out, put his hand on Regal's shoulders, said, Roy, get up and go back to the game. The game is only half over. Roy Riggles went back. Those tech players will tell you they never saw a player play with as much intensity. Roy Riggles went on not only to become a captain of his team, but an All-American. Because he understood through someone else that our past mistakes are not nearly as important as what's going ahead. We'll show ourselves some grace.